Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, two great film directors. First, I'll be speaking with Polish film legend Agnieszka Holland on her new film, Mr. Jones. Then, an extended conversation with Canadian legend Bruce McDonald on his new film, Dreamland. That's all coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McKee. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. There are few directors in the world that can truly be said to be a part of their country's film culture. Agnieszka Holland is one such director. Having worked in film for close to 50 years, she became known in 1990 with the film Europa Europa, which received an Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay. She has also received a nominee for Best Foreign Language Film, for 1985's Angry Harvest. Some of her other films include Fever, A Lonely Woman, Interrogation, Olivier, Olivier, Third Miracle, Washington Square, Golden Dreams, Julie Walking Home, Copying Beethoven, and 2011's in Darkness, which also received a nomination for Best Foreign Language Film at the 84th Academy Awards. She has also directed a, a remake of Rosemary's Baby and has directed several episodes of the television series The First, House of Cards, Treme, Killing, and The Wire. Her best-known film just might be 1993's The Secret Garden, which starred, among other people, Dame Maggie Smith. She has a new film out now called Mr. Jones, which chronicles Welsh journalist Gareth Jones, who in 1933 travels to the Soviet Union and uncovers the truth about Holdemore, the man-made famine in the Ukraine in which millions died. The film is out on digital later this week and on VOD at the beginning of July. This is my conversation with Agnieszka Holland. Hello, Agnieszka. Hi, how are you? Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. 
so you have a, a new film out, Mr. Jones. Um, this is a, a time period that I know you've that you've made films about before. What made you want to tell this story? Well, it's always difficult to say exactly why you want to tell the story. But here I had some, like, mm, precise reasons after reading the script. Mm, I was thinking for the time before also that it is not right that um, that the global conscience, global public opinion knows quite a bit about the Nazi crimes, uh, but the communist crimes, which sometimes been so awful and so dangerous for the for the future of the humanity, became like forgotten and 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 forgiven. Mm, and I thought that this particular crime and the victims, which are nameless and voiceless, are calling for you know for being 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 bring back to 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 the attention. And second reason, maybe even more important for me personally, it was the main character of the young, courageous and honest journalist who understands in some point that his duty is to <coughs> investigate and report the truth, regardless of the consequences, and regardless of the fact that the people are serving and media are serving mostly somebody's political or ideological agenda and um, are able to use the fake news and the alternative truth um, as a propaganda tool. And the question, what it means for the democracy, what it means for the, you know, for the humanity, yeah. if the media became corrupted and if we don't know what is true and what is not. So um, I found it very relevant, and I, I, I'm asking myself the similar questions in our times. I, I, I heard you say once that part of the issue with modern cinema is that there's a, a lack of connection both from the filmmaker and, and from the audience. When, when you read a script, what, what connects you to, to any given writing or, or any given character that... that that makes you want to make a specific piece? Well, it's very instinctive, you know. It's not something which is entirely rational. It's not that I... It, it has to call me. It has to have something which, you know, which, 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 which I feel suddenly that it touches me and that it urges me to tell the story. And afterward, I can rationalize and say it's probably because of that and that, because of my life experience, because the way I'm seeing the world, because I think that we are living in the times when it's not like worth it to tell non-important stories. Um, but that is like rational, you know, description of what is very actually intimist and very personal decision. Why do you think Gareth Jones made the decisions that he did? What made him such a good journalist? Well, and that is, you know, the, I, I did several movies about the people who are doing the right things and courageous things and dangerous things. 
um, to 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 serve the truth or or to save another people, and it was always to me and still remains the mystery. Why one person, one you know, the, the majority of the people they are just indifferent, or they just close in their own world of their own interests. And they are defending, you know, in the best their own family. And uh, um, where comes from this gene of the generosity and courage and justice? We don't know, frankly. So um, I was always attracted by this kind of the individuals and tried to, to dig into the, you know, into the mechanic of their decisions, trying to understand. Uh, uh, where it comes from, and you know, and I don't have the answers. It's why they are so fascinating. It's much more easier to 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 understand and explain uh, why somebody is doing very bad deeds. Why you know why somebody is uh, criminal. It's it's much it's much easier actually. It's less mysterious. How how do you work with with your actors as a director, uh, especially when you're directing a, a more historical piece such as this? You know, historical piece, it's not really, it's not any different from the contemporary piece. You just need to uh, to read different books to prepare. But um, by the end, it's the same. It's the emotions, and the emotions has to be lively and deep and believable and authentic. Uh, it's some, you know, some, uh, some um, behavior, some kind of, you know, of the gestures, uh, the actor finds for this or that particular character. And um, and the, 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 the past is only the form. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my, my historical movies um, uh, knowing that the past, as William Faulkner said in one of his novels, the past is not dead. It may be even not a past. So I feel that it is relevant, you know, that the, that the history never ended, that it's part of our of our present. So the, the work is not so different. The preparation are different because you you know much less about the past and the actors are less familiar with some particular things from the past than they are from their everyday life, you know. But, uh, but after doing this, the work is very similar. And uh, I try to work with that as we are discussing it, we are rehearsing a bit the things, we are analyzing it, we are looking exactly, we are looking for the personal connection with the with the character we are trying to understand the arch of the character uh, but by the end of the story it is what makes you know this collaboration meaningful it is the trust which builds up between the actor and the director why do you think we still see so many stories and so many people wanting to tell stories about pre-World War II and, and World War II and, and that whole time period. What what makes that still such a fascinating um, artistic and, and cultural uh, time? Because I, I think that we see something, something, you know, relevant, something regarding ourselves in those stories. And we have the distance, which... Uh, which makes possible to understand the whole picture, which we cannot when we are living through. And the 
times of today are so busy, everything happens so quickly, so many informations, so many events that people, even journalists, forget what happened two days ago. And we, we, we see, you know, a lot of trees, but we don't see the forest. And when you are the, the describing the, 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 the period which, which you know the end of the story, you know how the story ended, so you can see clearly the real nature of the things which are happening. Well, the film is Mr. Jones. Uh, and it hits uh, digital on, I think, next week and then on demand in July. And Jessica Holland, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye. Have a good day. Take care. That was my conversation with film director Agneska Holland. Her new film, Mr. Jones, will be out on digital June 19th and on on demand July Third. Well, from Poland all the way here to Canada, my next guest is a renowned Canadian film director who has been swiftly moving between genres for many, many years. I had the good fortune to speak with him in 2016 about his film, Weirdos. Other films that he's directed include the iconic Hardcore Logo and Pontypool. He has directed several TV series, included Creeped Out, Heartland, Dark Matter, Lost Girls, Rain, Cracked, Bomb Girls, Less Than Kind, and even Degrassi. His latest film is Dreamland, which stars Juliette Lewis, Henry Rollins, and his frequent collaborator, Stephen McHattie. It takes place in a seedy underground where an assassin has been hired to take out a jazz maestro it is a very very stunningly cinematic film and i talked with its director bruce mcdonald last week here is our conversation bruce mcdonald hello how are you i am very good i'm uh Sort of in the pilot seat here, talking to you. And uh, it's a sunny day outside. Summer is here. All is good. How's, uh, how's quarantine life treating you? Well, you know, we're pretty lucky here. Uh, you know, got a house in the backyard and a place to go. And so, you know, consider myself lucky, fortunate, have our health. Been reading a lot of books and seeing some movies and writing some stuff, so it's been surprisingly fantastic, actually. Well, all right. Um, so, how about you? Doing all right. You know, it's it it's been an adjustment. I think you know, I uh, I left my place in Toronto and came back to be with to be at my parents' house just because it was easier to be around family. I think. Yeah. 
No, it's, it's essential. And where are you now? Uh, Victoria. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. So been been here and for nine, ten weeks. Who knows how much longer I'll be here, but, you know, safe and sound, so it's okay for right now, right? Home cooking, that's not so bad, right? Yeah, home cooking, you know, get get to see the parents, get to see the the brother and sister-in-law. And- oh, that's good. I'm sure they're loving having you home. It's, uh, you know, one of the sort of unexpected pluses, you know, of like some nice family time. It's great. Yeah, and you, you get to reevaluate things a little bit, I think, so. Good, yeah. Well, you know, the West is the best, right? <laughs> That's what they say. But uh, you have a new film out, uh, Dreamland, uh, which I was really intrigued by. Um, how did this film come about for you? Uh, were you were you asked to direct it? Were you were you on board before there was a script? How 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 did it all come together? Uh, well, it's a, it's a kind of a group effort. Uh, the, the team that made it, myself as the director, Steve McCaddy as the actor, Lisa Houle, uh, actress, and Tony Burgess, the screenwriter with Patrick Whistler, who, who, who helped in the screenwriting department. We all worked together on a movie called Pontypool, which is about a language virus. And uh, that's, we kind of all came together there and so the impulse was, you know, when you get a good thing going, when the band is in tune and they have fun, you kind of want to do another tour. So it was kind of, you know, um, a big impulse to do this Dreamland came from that, kind of came from this group of us that we had a riot making this uh, kind of semi, uh, you know, uh, what you call it, semiotics or... Uh, semi-semiotic zombie movie. Uh, so we, you know, Tony is the sort of the mastermind. He's the writer, and then t- uh, the, th- the other three of us, we kind of, you know, rode shotgun as the script was developed. And it's nice to write f- with actors in mind that you know are going to play the parts, and that doesn't happen very often. So that was a real treat. And um, I'm not a writer, but I like to. It's fun to be involved in the uh, architecture of the movie because it, you know it's handed over to me at the end, so it's nice to be involved at the beginning. You just have a much closer relationship to it. Um, Pontypool definitely has a place in in Canadian filmmaking lore and history. The the working relationship between you and Stephen, how would you describe it, and how would you compare? working on Dreamland to, to Pontypool together? Um, well, I guess with Pontypool, uh, Stephen wasn't really involved in the conception of it, whereas in Dreamland he was. He was part of it kind of from the very beginning before there was even a script. So uh, that was really great to have his emotional kind of radar on, on the project. Now, I, you know, before Pontypool, I've had the pleasure to work with Stephen on a bunch of TV projects because we met on a television show. I was a little terrified of him because he's a formidable fellow uh, and he doesn't suffer fools easily, or is that, if that's the phrase. But I was, I was, I very quickly became enamored of him. He's very charming. He's very lovely human. 
and just uh, became, became one of my favorite actors uh, to watch and also to work with. He's a, he's a great collaborator. He's full of ideas. He really does his homework. Uh, so it's a, it's kind of, Stephen is a kind of an, a director's sort of dream actor. He just brings so much to the table and then he's prepared to kind of change it all. Like he's, he, you know, uh, he listens, he plays well with the other cast. He's, he, he, he keeps it fresh. So yeah, I love, I love watching him work cause it's always a surprise. And, and he plays a, a dual role in this film. Um, yeah. How do you approach that as a director, especially when the two characters are in a scene together? Well, I'd say first rule is hire Stephen McCaddy. Second rule is uh, stay out of the way. Uh, third, it was a little bit of, you know, to shoot that is it's a bit tricky, but not, not too bad. Like we had another actor wasn't really an actor. He was just a body that wore, that would act opposite Stephen when he played the other character. He'd wear the clothes and he would say the lines. So the other, you know, the, the Stephen McCaddy that was acting could get his timing down between, you know, so he had to, because he was having a conversation. So that was a bit tricky, but it, it sort of worked out. That was actually fairly easy. And it was, um, you know, it's a fun little bit of movie magic to, to do. It's fairly simple, but it's, it's quite effective. Um, so yeah, and for me, so it wasn't difficult. My job in that situation was not difficult at all. Uh, Stephen was the one that was really, uh, you know, doing the heavy lifting there. So uh, for me, it was kind of like having a front row seat at Stephen McCaddy's Acting Academy. Uh, let's talk about the cast. How, how involved were you in casting? Because you have Stephen, and then you have Juliette Lewis and Henry Rollins, who is brilliant at playing sadistic, I, I, I find. Um, well, great. I think he would like to hear that. He was, uh, Henry was actually a little nervous, you know, coming in. Not nervous, maybe that's the wrong word, but he, he knew he was coming in to be opposite Steve McCaddy. Now, Steve's been acting since he was a teenager. And Henry, you know, he's done. He's actually got, getting a fair, an impressive... Uh, body of work as an actor he's done some really terrific things but he doesn't come from that world he comes from music and he comes from uh writing he comes from performance uh i don't know if you've ever seen his spoken word stuff but it's, it's kind of brilliant anyway um so yeah I, I mean i've always been a fan and because the movie was kind of musicy like it's about a jazz musician you know, and Henry, uh, just, you know, his presence and his musical lineage, I thought was a really interesting combination. And Juliet is also a musician. I don't know if, you know, she's got his band called The Licks. So she's kind of coming the other way from Henry. He's coming from music into acting and Juliet's coming from acting into music. Um, and she's kind of like McCaddy. She's kind of fearless. She prepares like, really well. She's a sweetheart, she, the crew love her because she treats everybody very, you know, she's a very lovely human. Um, but again, she really, really prepares and she does her homework. And then when the cameras roll, she, you know, you kind of never quite know how it's gonna go, which is exciting. And she doesn't either because, you know, it's what happens in the scene and what the other character does. and. Uh, 
So it's, it's a pleasure when you have people of that sort of ability. Uh, it makes my job, like after I cast them, you know, and we've had a few, you know, talks about things and wardrobe and this and that, you know, my job is kind of 95% done. And then my job is on the set, just make it, you know, make it fun for them, make it safe. Don't, don't, you know, have pressure. Sorry, I gotta just turn this off. Uh, you know, don't let them feel the pressure of, you know, the time and just let them play and let them explore and let them, uh, and if you can do that as the director, if you can just set the stage so, then they're just gonna play and they're gonna give you stuff. A lot of the scenes, as you mentioned, take place at a jazz club and McCaddy plays a jazz musician. Why does the, the trope of a jazz club and sort of that environment work as uh, always a, like a, a seedy underground or, 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 or shady place? What, what makes that trope work for a lot of storytelling? Good question. Um, Maybe, you know, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on jazz, but from what I sort of know and, and have kind of come to know, you know, I get the sense that jazz is, you know, comes from the underground in a way. Jazz comes from the streets. It comes from, it's not a kind of a, you know, it's not coming down from the symphony halls or from even the music halls, you know, which was a kind of a more of a middle-class popular entertainment where you'd have, you know, vaudeville and singers and that sort of thing. Jazz comes from, well, it's black music, for example, as a, as a thing. So it comes from another economic class, traditionally. I mean, white guys played it too, but it, it's very much an American, uh, you know, musical expression. And, you, you know, if you look into like people like uh, Bud Powell and Louis Armstrong and Charlie Parker, you know, these are pretty, these are pretty fucking punk rock characters. These are, these are not your normal everyday nine to fivers, you know? So they, you know, I mean, they, they had a lot of class and they did a lot of, uh, played a lot of, they played Carnegie Hall, but they began in, you know, uh, Minton's in Harlem or they began in, you know, Bourbon Street in, in, in uh, New Orleans. So I guess jazz has always had this kind of uh, rebel music, uh, crazy devil's music, you know, it's often was called the devil's music. Uh, the devil, the trumpet was actually, no, no, that was the saxophone. The saxophone was called the devil's horn. I'm not sure where the trumpet was, but I'm sure it had some association with the Lord of the, you know, the, the Prince of Light and the Lord of uh, Dark, the Prince of Darkness. So yeah, yeah. So it's always kind of, it's romantic then. It's sort of, it's different from making a movie about a cello player, you know? Uh, and I know you, you shot the film in Luxembourg and Belgium, which also contributed uh, funding to it. Yeah. What was it like shooting this kind of, this kind of film in, in Europe, especially with a very international cast like you have as well? Well, I tell you, all the crew guys were very excited when Henry showed up. They were all like, and it was amazing to see his reach. It was like, they were all like, oh, the locations guy was like, you gotta, you gotta introduce me to Henry. You gotta let me sit with you guys at lunch. So they were very excited to, to meet Henry and Juliet. And uh, uh, very, uh, 
Europe, yeah, I mean, I, don't, I can't say this about all European crews, but the one we had, they were all extremely, uh, siren going by here. You know, the, the, the keys, the costume and the designers and the DPs are all, you know, intensely creative people with a you know, great body of work. And uh, I think that it was fun for them to work on a kind of North American film. I mean, they, you know, they, they would often talk to me about the French and how much they hated the French because uh, Luxembourg is next door to France and Belgium, of course, is, uh, you know, next door. So they thought us Canadians were pretty cool. Like they said, you guys aren't like the French at all. You're actually pleasant to talk to and you're fun to drink with. Unlike the horrible snooty French. <laughs> so uh, maybe it was just their experience, but I thought that was sort of funny. Um, it's always fun to go away and shoot something because you, when you finish shooting, you're still, you're still in dreamland, you know, you're with your colleagues and you, you know, if you go out on a weekend, you're still talking about the movie and you're still, you know, together. So it's very much like going away to camp or something. So it, it helps the movie in a way, uh, I think when you're away, cause you kind of live it. You don't go home and do the laundry or you don't, you don't have your other life to go to. You're just there. So yeah, we were very lucky to go to what we thought was a pretty exotic land. The film is highly stylized. Like there are some aspects I think that are very like kind of like film noir. There's a lot of mood lighting. How much of that is in the script? How much came when you were shooting and how much of that is in post? Well, it's interesting because in the script, uh, it doesn't get too detailed about say the set dressing and the, and the colors and that sort of thing. But what it does do is it gives us a kind of a, like the script was very clear that there was a world above and a world below. And it was this kind of, you know, it kind of, it kind of was one of the aspects of the film, this duality. You have, uh, you know, those two worlds and then you have uh, these two guys that look the same and you have, you know, these other little dual, dual things, I guess. So, you know, the script is always a bit of a map. So it, you know, the club was called Al-Qaeda, which I thought was kind of funny. Uh, and so it's the production designer, the DP. The DP was very, uh, he's a Dutch fellow, Richard van Oosterhout. And he, he kind of really brought the color to the movie. He brought this kind of vivid, uh, different colors, greens and blues, and it was, uh, you know, it just it was a style I really hadn't seen much here in, in North America. I was used to DPs with a much more muted, cool style, and uh, I really liked what Richard did with the light and the, and the, uh, that sort of thing. And then the, the designers would take us to these places that uh, really surprised me. Um, you know, uh, the world below was shot in a place called Charleroi in Belgium, and it was the kind of the Detroit of Belgium. It was an old industrial city. And that was not really imagined in the script. The script kind of imagined a kind of a fairy tale Euro town, you know, but the script didn't, didn't really imagine the broken downtown that we found. And so I think the keys, the, the costuming, the design, the photography, even the hair, 
uh, all those people really uh, added something that was not there in the script. And they really, I mean, the basic, I guess the basic kind of direction was in the title, was Dreamland. So I encouraged, my job as the director was to encourage them to not be logical or be a little bit, like let their kind of crazier notions out on the table rather than trying to explain things and and maybe instead of explaining things add to the sort of mystery of this world so it was really fun for the the different uh creators because they got to uh they kind of got to play a little bit more than they usually do you know i i couldn't help notice the contrast with this compared to your last film weirdos which was great and shot in black and white you know, and then you have a film like Tracy Fragments, which is a little maybe more like Dreamland, but a little, you know, fragmented. Yeah. As well. How much does style and image add to story? Uh, well, you know, like, I've always been sort of fascinated with style and image, you know, and uh, I think it can add a great deal, you know, and if you can serve the story with the style and with the and with the uh approach like say for example you brought up the tracy fragments you know again the title alone opened a door and gave us permission and we were inspired by you know the norman jewison film the thomas crown affair and some other of these pop art things and sometimes it's a contrast you know because say for example in the tracy fragments it was a world that was very kind of grim and cold and, uh, you know, kind of kitchen sink realism. And, you know, I thought, hmm, you know, that could be okay. But I like films with a little bit of style and a little bit of panache because it makes it different from television, you know? Uh, television is so good at, you know, narrative, uh, character, chapters, episodes, like novels in a way. And there's a kind of realism to a lot of television, which is great, it's really beautifully observed. But for some reason, I think that movies have this little extra crazy gene or something that, that maybe part because you're, you're, you're in the ideal world, you can watch them on a big, big screen. And a lot of them are made to be seen that way. Um, doesn't mean that they don't work in other formats, but Movies, how are movies different from television? Well, movies can, they seem to play with style a bit more. They seem to kind of embrace the cinema of things of like sound and image. Um, sometimes it's a contrast in Tracy where you have this really pop art stylistic fragments, fragmentary split screen effect that we maybe went a little crazy with, but it sure is sure made people sit up and take notice. They were like, wow, nobody's, nobody does it like this. And we were like, well, they did in 1967, they did. So, you know, you're always looking back in history and you're kind of pulling up old styles and approaches. So for some reason, I guess maybe because whenever I get to make an independent movie every once in a while, in, you know, I'm in that world, I'm the boss, right? In TV world, I'm just the dinner guest. So I can't really, can't really change the, the foundation. It's a writer's medium and a, and a producer's medium. But in film, I think is more of a director's medium. So 
it's part of the reason that we kind of make efforts every couple of years to make something that, you know, for, with whatever we've got and weirdos, simple choice of going black and white, but it's nonetheless, it's, it's a very sort of stylistic kind of notion that makes you kind of look at everything a little differently. So yeah, I, I mean, it's a really, uh, it's really fun to play because then everybody gets involved. Then it's the costuming and the, you know, the design and the photography and uh, the soundtrack. And it's a really wonderful thing to, uh, you know, you want to be careful maybe that you don't, you know, it doesn't become complete style over content because I think the best results are when the style can serve the story or to, you know, to illuminate the story to become even more resonant or emotional that uh, that can happen. You, uh, there are some young kids in this movie, a couple of in a supporting role and then a few others pop up. How do you approach working with actors that young, especially when you have a film like this that deals with darker subject matter? Well, uh, I know on some sets, uh, I think it's a recent thing, but if there's difficult uh, material, uh, they'll, they'll sometimes have somebody on the set, you know, they're like a psychologist in case, you know, you need a little something. Uh, in this case, however, uh, the kids had the most fun they've ever had. <laughs> like even, they knew that, okay, I'm a, I'm a sex slave or I'm a slave and I'm a urchin and I'm going to be eaten by a vampire. And, you know, I mean, you don't get into sort of the nitty gritty details with them, but they get the basic thing and they understand that they've been kidnapped and they've been stolen and they're going to be sold to some weirdo rich person as their slave. We might, we don't necessarily go into like the, you're going to be a sex slave, but we say, you know, you're going to be a child slave to this vampire. He's going to suck your blood and you're going to probably die, you know? So, and they're like, oh my gosh, right? And they love it. So, you know, uh, the kids had, the, had a riot on this. They just loved every moment of it. And uh, uh, because for them, you know, they know, they're very clear, this is a movie, it's not real life. Uh, so they know that they're playing and that's the main thing. But they really go for it, you know? And working with kids is, is a delight because they, you know, they understand movies, they love movies. And, you know, especially these days, or people are pretty literate at a very young age because they, you know, they can see so much now. Unlike when I was a kid, you know, it was not near the volume of stories that you could watch. Uh, so yeah, the kids were fantastic and uh, they really uh, enjoyed themselves. They worked well with the adults. They were really fun to have on set. It's always great to have young kids on set. Get, it keeps everybody else kind of cooled out a little bit because adults can get, adults are the ones that get a little squirrely, right? Yeah. And the kids kind of are the great leveler because you realize, oh yeah, we're all here kind of playing cops and robbers, you know, and let's just remember uh, that this is us playing house, you know, we should be pretty damn lucky to, to, to be where we are and, and get paid for it and be in Luxembourg and, you know, I don't know, just, it's like being in the circus. It, it reminds me of that quote that um, 
Stephen McCaddy says in the film where he goes, we start out as a bunch of people and end up as one. And I think that's very apt of the, of the filmmaking process in a way. Um, as we mentioned, you shot in Europe. And I, I, sometimes I feel like there's, there's a different mentality or approach to filmmaking in Europe versus North America. Is that something you noticed either with the actors or, or with the people behind the scenes? Well, weirdly in Europe, they worship the director. They don't, I mean, here, yes, but much more, and it's funny, like I noticed that uh, there's this real notion of the director as the commander of the army. You know, it goes beyond even the auteur theory. Uh, it just seems to be this kind of, they, they really want that focus of that one person to lead them. I mean, you, it is like that here in certain, you know, I suppose if you're Martin Scorsese or you're Steven Soderbergh, that is very definitely the case. But as a general rule here, maybe I'm talking more in TV land, but it was really kind of apparent there. And, and it was really um, lovely for me because, you know, everybody treats you like really well. And they want to, they want to, uh, they really want to make you happy. They don't want to disappoint you. I mean, that happens here, but there I just felt it more for some reason. I'm not quite sure why that is, uh, but I did think it was awesome. Um, their approach is, I think there's probably a more adventurous sense of design. Um, of course, you know, compared to Canada, I mean, they've had a much longer history of making movies. They've been making movies for a hundred years, right? We've been making movies in this country in a serious way for maybe 30 years, 40, you know, like as a, as a rule, not as an exception. Maybe since, you know, the 70s is, 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 is when things really started to catch on. Um, they don't work, the hours aren't as long there, which I think is way better. And the reason is that they allow life into the set. Whereas here, you know, it's not unusual here to shoot like a 12 hour day. That's actually fairly normal or 13 or 14. So when you do that for a lot of days in a row, you know, you're kind of staggering home, you're flop, maybe you have a glass of wine or something or a joint or a scotch and then you flop out and you're up at the crack of dawn. So there's never a chance to kind of have dinner with your friends, hear a story, go to the theater, go see a band, go for a jog, you go to do a little boxing, you know, whatever it is that you do. And then you bring that to the set the next day. You go, hi man, I was out with these cats last night and they told me this thing and I thought we could use that for the movie. So there's something, uh, there's something about that notion of the crew and the cast having a, not a huge life, but a little bit of a life outside the set on a regular day because they bring those things to the set. And sometimes those things are very valuable. So that's, you know, that's a thing that I noticed for sure. They have really good cheese on the set, which is something I noticed. Yeah. Uh, and they all are, uh, what else? Uh, funny things. Uh, yeah, a couple other funny things, but it was a real, yeah, it's a real treat. And you see, they, you know, they do little technical things a little bit differently and they call things a little bit differently. Um, 
slightly different sort of formats for things. So it's exciting for them and for us because we're kind of comparing our things. Yeah. Um, we, we briefly talked about uh, Weirdos and Tracy Fragments, and in both those films you worked with two actresses who were up-and-coming men and are now huge stars, uh, Ellen Page, of course, and Julia Sarah Stone. Can you take any responsibility for discovering them? Um, and and how, how do you feel about where, where they're at now? No, I just bask in their, in their luminescence, you know? I mean, it's funny because the two of them, Julia and Ellen, there's a sort of a, not a similarity, but there's a little bit. They're both, you know, very beautiful humans and they're both kind of old souls. Like when you, there's a kind of wisdom that they both have. Because I worked with both of them at, you know, Ellen was, I think 17, I think uh, Julia was about 16 or 17 when we worked together. And they both had this kind of great um, wisdom to them, this great sort of knowingness and it made them a, you know, a little bit older beyond their years. And there was something very powerful about that. There was a kind of a, um, uh, yeah, I don't know how else to say it, like an old soul. Uh, it's like they knew things and there was a confidence without being arrogant or without being showy. There was a kind of a, a, comf a, a, a confidence and a kind of a, a security in who they were. And so it gave them this sort of fearlessness and it gave them this confidence. Um, you know, both obviously, you know, ambitious in a kind of a un, an unhorrible way where they really loved the set and they loved what they did and they loved storytelling and I'm, I couldn't be more thrilled that they you know accomplished great things and you know maybe me being a part of it um you know I'm kind of proud of that association and I hope you know that they can finance my next movies you know now that they're famous and they're well known they'll I'll be like hey you know Let's come and play again. So this this is good, and because they remember those films very fondly, um, because it is early in the game for them, and the fact that both films that was a really pleasant experience for them, like it wasn't, they had fun, uh, they were still learning their craft, yet they seemed like old pros. Um, so maybe those films that gave and helped give them some more confidence or just to even have them walk away at the end and going, you know, filmmaking is fun. And when you make films with the right people, it's amazing. So they, you know, to, for them, because in your career, you have some projects are more uh, difficult than others for all kinds of reasons. And some are really pleasant. Doesn't mean it's a reflection on the success or failure of the film. It's just sometimes the, the process is, is more, complicated or more uh, of pleasure. So uh, I think in those cases, they, they walked away thinking, oh yeah, this is really, this is good. And so I felt like, well, maybe I had a part of their wanting to go on in this crazy business, I don't know. And I'm glad that they did because they're both so awesome. Uh, and I look forward to the next time that we get to play together, you know, because you know, it's a sort of small world when it comes down to it. It's uh, not that small, but it's, it's surprising. Uh, 
how things kind of come around and come full circle and you meet people and like the guy, good example, my a friend of mine, AD friend who did our first three films. He did Roadkill, uh, Highway 61, Dance Me Outside, David Webb. And David Webb also did Adam McGoyan's early films. Where's David Webb now? He is the assistant director on The Joker. He is assistant director for the last three Scorsese pictures. He's the assistant director for George Clooney, for Sean Penn. Wow. Like he is the best in the world. And it was like, oh yeah, me and David, we started together, you know? So maybe the hope one day David and I can team up on some hundred million dollar movie and he'll know how to run things. So. Yeah. Uh, and finally, what do you think filmmaking and the industry is going to look like once we come out of this? I think you'll see a lot of singing and dancing movies. Joy. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, um, I guess people will feel for a little while, a little bit cautious and a little bit, you know, whatever. But I don't know. Um, you know, if people are looking for models to kind of, you know, ramp back up to the full orchestra, maybe it's good to look at independent, some independent film models that are kind of more chamber pieces than the full orchestra, you know? Like you look at a film like uh, Persona by Bergman, which is too, amazing actresses at a country house. Or you look at something like My Dinner with Andre, which is two guys having dinner. Or you look at Polanski's uh, Repulsion. Or you look at, you know, any number of these films that take place in a, in a place. Uh, I don't know, maybe that makes everybody a little calmer because they can, can control the, the, last, uh, the last wisps of the COVID a little easier in one location than they can in 47 locations. So maybe you'll see a bit more of that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting time to see things change and how people adapt, you know? So, you know, knock on wood, we're all still healthy and good and looking forward to doing things. And you're probably looking forward to you know, coming back east and uh, re-engaging. So, uh, you know, look me up when you get back to town. Uh, will do. Yeah. The, the film is Dreamland. It's a great film. I believe it drops June, uh, is it out now on VOD or is it June, June 5th? I've uh, June 4th or 5th in the States and in Canada, I think it's like in the next couple of days. All right. Yeah. Well, we, uh, we all look forward to it uh, when it comes out. Bruce McDonald, thanks so much for your time today. Right on, man. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you soon. See you on the flip side. All righty. Ciao. Okay. Ciao. <laughs> and once again, that was my conversation with the director, Bruce McDonald. His new film, Dreamland, is out now. Well, that's the show for today. Before I go, I just want to say that I stand in solidarity with all the protesters that are currently speaking up about all the injustices and police violence in our world. Stay safe. Stay healthy. I'll see you next time. Goodbye for now. Just say
I just like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>